Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah. I've got Darcy with me, per usual. Darcy, say hi to listeners. Hey, what's up? <laughs> that didn't work out as well as I thought it was going to in my head. Eh, we've had better, but that's all right. <laughs> it's okay, they can't all be perfect. Nah. So what's going on with you these days? Um, geez, not very much. I'm finally starting to feel better. I don't know if I sound any better because I like lost my voice for a couple weeks, but I'm finally starting to feel a little bit better. Um, but other than that, I'm just staying in the house and trying to get this research done on my dissertation so I can finish school and get out of here. And Okay, so talk to me what's going on where you're at. I, I'm, it's my understanding that things are closing back down. California is like shut back down again. We like- are still open like as open as we have been throughout this whole thing. Um, the area where I am never like fully, fully reopened. There's still, yeah. uh, there's restaurants that are open, but it's like still like 50% capacity kind of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. You still have to wear a mask everywhere you go. Um, everybody's still taking temperatures and that whole thing. And, and yeah. I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I got sick. So like I'm trying to avoid going places or unless I absolutely have to. And then I do the mask and then hand sanitizer and all of that. So Nothing has changed as far as shutting down more here, but I think it's going to be right around the corner because our numbers are still going up and classes have started like students have moved into dorms and stuff Mm -hmm. and like sororities and fraternities and all of that. So I imagine we're going to be seeing a little bit of a spike, getting a lot of positives number. Yeah. Positive numbers soon. So I think we'll probably shut back down again soon. But um, as of right now, we're still open. I think we're looking decent in my area, although they did Mm -hmm. just put a new mandate out for the state of Illinois, and I think it's because there's been a lot of spikes in, like, the Chicago area, Uh Um, but not a lot of the outlying rural areas, but now the new mandate is that you have to wear a mask everywhere, and I don't know that there's... We already had to do that, but... They uh-huh. have this new rule that, because you used to be able to go into a restaurant and you, as soon as you sat down at the table, you could take your mask off mm-hmm. and you didn't have to put it back on unless you got up and went to the bathroom or whatever. But now I guess you have to wear the mask in the restaurant and if the waitress comes back to your table, you have to put it on again. Oh, huh. As long as there's somebody else at your table that's not part of your party. And then as soon as they walk away, you can take it off again. But to me, I don't really see that that's an impactful difference like how is that really gonna I guess it's just it's still about limiting your risk um but like if you're taking the mask on and off a bunch of times like aren't you going to be spreading germs because you're well I would guess the idea is if the server is close to you you have to put the mask back on so you limit like the droplets that go through the air like from your like saliva and stuff like that when you speak Um, or when they speak, so you would limit that risk. Hmm. Um, And then the idea would be, like, when they're farther away, it would dissipate in the air. And so... It really happens that fast? Well, that's why they have the the six-foot rule. (laughs) I mean, that's that's why they say six feet, because they they think, which actually, I just saw something that six feet may not be enough, but the idea behind the six-foot rule is that that's kind of the barrier of when you're not at a greater risk of like droplets in like the saliva or the air or whatever. Like it's not going to carry past six feet. That's the idea behind that. I don't know. It's interesting. I've been talking a lot with um, different service providers and different people around them to kind of see how other people think about it because it's really easy to get like insulated and just follow Mm -hmm. your own opinion and believe in what you believe in as well. But 
I don't know about you, but I'm always interested in how other people think about it as well. And as I mentioned in an earlier episode, I just took a trip to Florida, which is kind of one of the areas that's had a little bit of a spike, mm-hmm. not so much in the area that we were in, but I kind of had a conversation with, because my guys, um, cousins all work at Disney. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so I asked him, I'm like, um, how do you feel about going back to work? Cause I know that there's been a lot of conversation at the Disney California about people not wanting to go back to work and unions protesting and all that, you know, people are scared and Mm -hmm. things like that. And I asked him, I'm like, because we got together with a group of them and we practiced social distancing and everyone, everybody wore masks and things like that. But I asked him, I'm like, how do you guys feel about this? Are you afraid? Mm -hmm. You know, would you rather be at home? And they said, hell no, we want to be at work. We we work here and we've been here for 30 years because we love our job. We want to be at work. We're not afraid of this. You know, Disney has done everything in their power to create an environment where we are as safe as you can be outside. You know, Mm -hmm. they've upped their sterilizing procedures. They're sanitizing everything. They're putting masks on everybody's, you know, when you, and it was interesting because as soon as you walk into the park, you have to, you know, tell them, and you, are you experiencing any of these symptoms? They take your temperature. They, mm-hmm. you know, do everything they can to um, sort of fetter out anyone who might potentially be spreading illness and disease. And then the staff members themselves get tested, I think once a week or once every, every other week. Mm-hmm. and are provided with accommodations and care if they do test positive. But according to, you know, speaking with the employees that were working there, none of them knew anybody that had tested positive as employees. They had, you know, random people that they kind of knew from through a person through a person who had it, but mm-hmm. they didn't know anyone directly, and none of them had tested positive for it. Um, and they wanted to be at work. They loved their jobs, right. and they would much rather be doing that than sitting at home doing nothing. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to be sitting at home prevented from working. Well, I mean, I kind but of I do like think, and, and it's working. really <laughs> what I kind of like sitting at home not working. I well, yeah, but like as far as being physically prohibited from working, nobody wants that. Nobody wants the wants to be prevented prevented from earning money. Yeah, um, or paying their bills, but like. And it's really, it's great to hear that Disney's done all of that for their employees. I don't know that but California I... is the same because I don't know. Oh, okay. That's just Florida. It it's yeah. Florida's doing, and I think it's each park is doing what they see fit according to their mm-hmm. local regulations. Cause you've got Disney Paris, you've got Disney, you know, California, mm-hmm. you've got Disney, Florida, you've got all these different ones, Disney Tokyo. They're all doing what they need to do according to the safety and regulations of that particular region. Right. So... Because California shut down and they never really opened up, and I believe that the unions in California really put their foot down and said, we're not going back. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it's up to them. It's their safety, their perspective. they got a different situation there than they right. do in Florida. And there's a different situation in Florida than we have here in Illinois. And so I think you really have to go off of what your regional regulations and, and rules are. But yeah. I thought that was interesting. I talked to the Uber driver as well. Mm-hmm. So we took a like a ride share to and from the airport and the same thing with those guys they were you know they said that they haven't really had any downturn in business that they've been mm-hmm. even busier than ever and that they don't feel unsafe which was interesting i would have thought that the the lyft and uber drivers would have been a little bit more cautious or afraid just well, because they're, i think they're in closer proximity you're in that small space and enclosed in a car and that sort of thing i thought that for sure that they would have expressed some concern 
Well, you also have sample bias, though, right? Because with Uber or Lyft, you can choose when when you do or don't want to drive. Mm -hmm. So the ones that do have concerns about that aren't going to be taking rides. Right. So the ones you're asking are not concerned about it. Yeah. Um, Very, very interesting sample. And and I talked to the wait staff at the restaurants that we went to and Granted, you know, people are going to want to protect their business and not get in trouble for saying anything negative. So you may have, Mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of a false sense of what is really going on. But I was very pleased with how friendly and how accommodating and how nice and just chill everyone seemed everywhere we went. The food Mm -hmm. was freaking phenomenal. I don't think I've ever ever had better food in a location just (laughs) from start to finish. And just the staff... Disney Florida before? Yes, but we ate outside. We had a lot of experiences where we left because there was not a lot of stuff open at the parks. There's very limited food options and all the parks are closing at like seven, Mm -hmm. that sort of situation. So really we would have lunch at the park and then we would go have dinner somewhere else off Mm -hmm. outside. And just the service that we received, people were just so friendly and so sweet that Mm -hmm. we didn't have a single bad experience in this entire 10 day trip. So it was very nice to be able to get away. And I think that there was some minor amount of concern in the back of my mind because when I got on the airplane, they did not, they weren't practicing social distancing. They were putting everyone in seats right next to like inches away from a complete stranger. And they had Mm -hmm. everybody packed into the end of the plane and the beginning of the plane. The middle of the plane was empty. So I just really? didn't feel like they were doing a very good job. They were they us. were using like the middle seat. The middle portion of the plane was completely empty, and they had every row, every seat filled in the back of the plane and the front of the plane. And I was just like, uh huh, because I had a lot of people. I wrote, made a comment on on Facebook, and a lot of people wrote to me and said, "Well, you know, I flew uh, Northwest Airlines, or no, no, it's Alaska. I flew. I think Northwest is yeah. It was like Northwest defunct, isn't, <laughs> but it used to be part of that yeah. group. But um, Alaska Airlines, and they were separating people by row. Um, on the way yeah. back, we did get separated. Mike and I were together in a, in a row by ourselves, and then there was a row between us and the next family in the front and the mm-hmm. back. But on the flight out, it wasn't that wasn't the case at all. Hmm. So I was a little bit concerned about that because you're literally just two inches away from yeah. a complete stranger, yeah, they really skin to skin touching. Airplane. And I just was mm-hmm. like, wow, I don't, I don't even like that before COVID. Like right? I'm just, I don't want to be touching a stranger, period. I know a lot of airlines have like, they're leaving that middle seat vacant, like they're in a row of three. They're supposed to is what I thought. And I thought that they were supposed to space out the passengers. It's, I think it's airline by airline. Particularly if they have the room to do it. It just doesn't yeah. make sense. You've got the whole middle of the plane empty and you've got us all jammed into like the yeah, back of the plane. Yeah, that's weird. Like, what? Didn't make Maybe they misinterpreted the rule. I don't know. But like, and then they said, I get it. You know, they're doing the best they can to survive. The airline industry just, mm-hmm. I don't know how they're going to survive. It's going to take a major government bailout because the amount, it's a 90% drop in airline yeah. passage at the moment and the company that I work for is you know because we've got a huge commercial division that deals with parts for airliners and mm-hmm. now we're having more layoffs so it's it's a very scary experience out there mm-hmm. right now and I think you know I, I wanted to kind of experience it myself and again I know there's probably a lot of people out there that are like you need to stay home you need to you know do this and and you shouldn't be exposing people and you shouldn't be going out and doing this but you gotta live. Yeah, I, there's a balance. You there's definitely a balance somewhere. Certain industries that are about to tank. Like we have mm-hmm. to be able to do some things in order to maintain our sanity. And for me, that helps me to maintain my sanity. I don't. 
you know, you may be different and the listeners may each be different and that's okay too. I was actually just talking about that this morning in therapy because I was like, I am very introverted. I don't need a lot of like human interaction in terms of like physical interaction. I'm very comfortable living alone, being alone, just reading a book and like me and my dog. That's like, I'm very comfortable with that. Yeah. I've started though to get a little bit of cabin Mm -hmm. fever. And I think it's because I was so sick for a while Yeah. um, that I literally was just in bed. So I've started to get a little bit of cabin fever. And I was talking this morning about that with my therapist and she was like, okay, what can you do to kind of like get out of this rut? And I was like, you know, I was thinking about this, that it's kind of ironic because I am now finished with classwork and we are basically prohibited from like going into the lab and physically collecting data right now. So I'm literally just working from home all day, every day. So like there's nothing keeping me physically where I am. So like if I wanted to go visit a friend, I have that ability to do that. I have the time now I can go and I can work from home or I can go out of town, visit my friends. But then it's like, no, you can't because like, because of COVID. So it was really interesting. Like I've really been thinking about taking a trip and maybe I'll just do something where like I drive somewhere and like get out of town for a little bit. But like I am starting to kind of get that itch of wanting to of needing that change. But it's trying to find the balance of staying safe, keeping other people safe and taking care of myself. You know what I mean? And I think we all have to find that. So please don't send Mm -hmm. us any nasty emails complaining about me leaving the house. (laughs) We're all just trying to get through it right now. Our regulations here do not dictate that we have to stay home. Right. We're just supposed to be smart about when we leave the house and maintain that social distance and keep washing your hands and wear a mask. And as long as you do those things and you're not, you know, taking a bunch of unnecessary trips all over the place, then yeah. I think that you're okay. And you put yourself at risk. I get that. But that was the risk that we were willing to take in order to maintain our own sanity because we've got the two of us in the house right now. Mm-hmm. We're working for the same company, sitting in the same room all day long it's mm-hmm. just you, we don't have animals to go out and walk like you just you need something for your sanity and that was what we needed yeah it's we're all just trying to get through it right now we're all trying to find our way and it's a really fine line between being mindful of everything going on taking care of ourselves being mindful yeah. of others and now, if we were running around out without masks on and, right. you know, get, going to huge parties and, and just putting others in jeopardy and at risk and we were feeling sick and decided to go do it nonetheless and, and not right. be aware of everyone around us, then I would say, okay, maybe there's reason to complain. But I think we did it as safely as we could do it. And who knows when we'll be able to do it again, because if things shut down again, then right. we won't be able to go anywhere for a long time. And the thing is, we're not going to work. We're not going anywhere right now. Yeah. So it's challenging. But anyway, um, let's jump into the episode for the day now that we've beaten this dead horse. Hmm, right. So there's something that's kind of come up that we have had a few people ask about occasionally that we felt like it was kind of important to address. And it's been an issue, I think, that's been ongoing with a lot of podcasts that are out there, and it's about research and, and what we do for research. I know a couple of people have kind of asked us about that, and we felt like it was kind of important to elaborate um, with respect to what we do for research. And on this show, I think, just being that I come from a legal background, um, we get taught a lot about how to research and how to use sources mm-hmm. of research that are more legitimate than other sources. And for myself, I can't speak for Darcy, I'm going to let her speak for herself in just a moment, but for myself... 
I like to find at least three sources for every topic that I do. And I'll typically pull in a podcast, at least one podcast, an article online and a Wikipedia page at the minimum. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, typically it's about seven or eight sources per each show that I'm looking at. And I tend to look at articles from the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and then kind of compare notes with respect to all those things to make sure that factually speaking, it sounds right and looks right. Now, I know that mm-hmm. Darcy does quite a bit more than I do. Darcy, you want to kind of explain explain how you kind of do your research? Yeah, so... Um... I love Wikipedia. I'll just put that out there. I literally read it every... I probably have 30 Wikipedia tabs on my phone right now. I read about all different kinds of things. And and a lot of people, like, kind of put Wikipedia down. But the reason I like it is, yes, anybody can add anything, blah, 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 whatever. But you have to also have references for the things you add because they will flag it if you don't. Mm -hmm. And what I like to do is I like to find something on Wikipedia and then go to those re- that references tab and read those articles and, and pull those articles. Yes. And I like to and and basically to me the way I look at Wikipedia is it's a summary of all of the references in a story. Yeah. And then you can read that story, but you're still using something that has been reported in the news or in a scholarly research or anything like that. So I want to get that out of the way. Um, the other thing I do is, being a PhD student, I look at a lot of scholarly research and I know how to consume it. Um, we have done some stuff where we've looked at like blunt force trauma injuries, and that is what I'm actually studying in school. So like that has been nice to kind of pull in what I've used for my schoolwork to pull that in for the show. But I also go into other subjects like I look at legal forensic science journals all the time for things that don't have anything to do with what I'm doing my dissertation on like yeah um because what you learn when you're doing a PhD is you learn how to consume research you learn how to critically read it you learn how to look Mm -hmm. for flaws you learn how to look for issues with the with the validity you learn how to understand the statistical methods that they use um, and you right. learn how to question all these things. And for me, that makes our show stronger. Right. Because we are pulling in this. We have different um, backgrounds in academic research, but we both have backgrounds in research. We both know how to consume that kind of research. Right. And I think that, you know, you pull seven or eight articles. I pull, you know, a couple of really good peer-reviewed journal scholarly articles um, for a lot of the shows that we do. I've read I've read entire books for some of these episodes that we've done. You know, I, I yeah. use the actual lit review that I wrote for um, a 20-page paper that I wrote for one of my um, PhD courses for that right. the staircase episode. So I'll try to pull the legal cases, too. Yeah. Or autopsies report whenever they're available. Sometimes they're just not. And you just got to yeah. do the best you can to piece together the other articles and... You'll hear me say, well, this several sources said they were the person was 30 and several sources mm-hmm. said they were 28. I just want to let everyone know there are d- multiple sources with different things said. Mm-hmm. So uh, I try to find the most accurate details that I can. And right. sometimes it's speculation and we try to make that clear that it's speculation if it's not. And sometimes it's, it's conflicting information. Yeah. Too. There's news reports that get the information wrong. And I think that's why I like scholarly articles um, a lot because they are peer reviewed and 
there's still issues with some of those, though. And actually, we're going to talk about that uh, in my case today, if you want to go ahead and get started on that one. Awesome. Let's do it. So, like I said, I love Wikipedia. I don't even remember how I got on this. This is one of those things where I'm, like, reading about a topic, and then you're, like, you see one of those, like, you see a link, and you're, like, oh, let me click on that. And you see another link, and you're, like, let me click on that. And I ended up on this topic. So, this is a Wikipedia article, but like I said, I look at all the references and I pulled a couple, couple scholarly journals as well for this one. So this is the story of Wayne Dumond. So Wayne Dumond was born in September 1949 in DeWitt, Arkansas, and there's not a lot of information about his early life, but we do know that he did serve in the Vietnam War because when he returned, he bragged about helping slaughter a village in Cambodia. Uh, okay. And... Unfortunately, that's a kind of believable brag. Like, he may not have done it, but we do know that stuff like that happened, right? You know? So, in, in August of 1972, he and two other men, I believe they were two other soldiers, they were arrested for killing a man in Lawton, Oklahoma. And what they did is they... Dumont used the 17-year-old daughter of one of his accomplices to lure this victim to an isolated location where they beat him to death with a claw hammer. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he was arrested for this, but the charges were dropped when he agreed to testify against the two other men, even though in court he got up there and said, yes, I did beat the, help beat this man to death with a claw hammer. The charges were still dropped against him. Sucks that people can do that. Right. And so a year later, in 1973, he's arrested and charged with sexually assaulting a teenage girl in Tacoma, Washington. My hometown. And I don't know if he was maybe at Lewis McCord. Maybe he was stationed there. I don't know if he was still in the military at that time. But that would kind of make sense because that's where Lewis McCord is, right? He's in Tacoma. Uh, that's two separate um, bases, right? He... No, Fort it's, Lewis. Well, it's it's a joint base. And McCord Air Force Base. It's a joint. It's a joint base now. Because okay. when I grew up, it was two separate. So. Yeah, it may have been two separate at that time. Yeah, but um, but I was there. We used to go watch the planes take off from there, from the McCord Air Force Base. That's pretty. Yeah. Cool. Right. Um, I was there a couple years back helping out with um, Air Force Special Operations Command stuff. So it I it's I know it's a joint base now, but I guess back in back when you were growing up, and then certainly. And 73, it would have been two separate. So I don't know which one that was, but he was in Tacoma at the time. Okay. So he was convicted of this one, and he received a five-year deferred sentence and mandatory drug counseling. So he did not go to prison at all. He just had to seek counseling. Did they just not realize this guy had any kind of a record at all? I mean... I don't know if, like... seems like a little... Not even a slap on the wrist. It's like a flick Yeah, like, I don't know if in 73 they didn't know how bad sexual assault was. Like, maybe they just didn't take it seriously in terms of sentencing and the, the like, you know, how, how it can lead to future violent crimes I, and escalate. I'm not sure, but yeah, he didn't go to jail for that one. So... And in 1976, he's charged with raping a woman in back in DeWitt, Arkansas. Okay. So, again, these charges are dropped before the trial under the condition that he seek counseling. So, he's yet to go to prison for any of these crimes. Murder and sexual assault charges. And one of those sexual assault charges is a minor. No prison time. But. Sounding a lot like Wesley Allen Dodd. Right. 
it, but none of that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> that's just a precursor to the fun okay. things, right? So in 1984, Dumont is arrested for the rape of a 17-year-old girl in Forest City, Arkansas. And her name is available on the internet, but because she was underage at the time, I'm not going to use her name. But this young girl, though, is a distant cousin of Bill Clinton, who was governor of Arkansas at the time. And I think she was like a third cousin, so kind of distant. Um, And... Before his trial, so after he's been arrested, but before he goes to trial, he says that two men broke into his home, made him perform oral sex, quote, just like you made her do, is according to what, according to him, what they said to him, and then they castrated him. Oh, my God. And in the 80s in Arkansas, I don't know if this is like some kind of eye for an eye vigilante justice. Don't know. But no one's arrested for that crime. And his testicles were actually recovered at the scene, and the St. Francis County Sheriff kept them in a jar with formaldehyde. Oh, no. He kept them on his desk. So they couldn't reattach them? That I don't know about. I don't know if it's, like, reattaching, like, a tip of a finger. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if they can reattach it, reattach the testicles. But he he picked them up, put them in a matchbox, put them in a jar, and then went to the funeral home and got some formaldehyde and kept them on a desk, on his desk. Isn't that awful? And some people... Who does that? Dude, I have no idea. Like, you're going to ask that question a lot, I think, in this story. (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) So some people started to think that Dumont actually did this to himself to gain sympathy. Because there were no signs of a struggle at the scene. There were no, like, ligature marks on his wrist. He said he'd been restrained. There were no marks on his wrist. And there was um, a, an almost empty half-gallon bottle of Jim Beam at the scene. Oh. So maybe he got himself drunk and did this to himself. What don't do know. What do you think? I'd, I really don't know. Like, that's the thing, is when you read about this kind of thing, I don't know how well they, like, checked out the scene in 1984 you know what i mean like i think the liquor bottle and the lack of restraint marks kind of makes me think maybe he did it to himself but like we just said who does that (laughs) like i can't imagine doing that but anyway so he dumont actually later successfully sued the uh, saint francis county for publicly displaying his testicles he sued the sheriff and the sheriff publicly displayed his testicles and flushed them down the toilet. Oh, God. Why? Yeah, it just gets worse. It just gets worse. So Dumont successfully sued the, the sheriff in the county. He was awarded $110,000. Oh, my word. Yeah. But after all of that, he's still convicted of the rape and sentenced to life plus 20 Okay, which is so a really that, stout sentence. Bye-bye 110. Bye-bye <laughs> 110,000. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you got to assume that went immediately to his defense attorney, right? I yeah. Mean, oh, yeah. So, so he gets life plus 20. And in the early 90s, when Bill Clinton's starting his presidential campaign, this case starts to get some national attention. Oh, I'm sure. And according to an article I found in The Village Voice, the victim's father was part of a Democratic machine that controlled the Arkansas Delta. So that's like the area of Southwest Arkansas near the Mississippi River, like the Mississippi River Delta. There's some powerful political uh, folks in that area. Yeah, and so apparently the victim's father, who is a 
second cousin of Bill Clinton runs this machine. And, and there's a lot of speculation that he helped his rise because Bill Clinton was born and raised in Southwest Arkansas. So it mm-hmm. seems as though they did know each other. Okay. And in 1990, the Arkansas Parole Board actually recommended Dumont's release, saying that his continued incarceration was a miscarriage of justice. Which, like, I don't know how you get to that conclusion, but that was Uh, Arkansas Parole Board in 1990. Perplexed. Yeah, but Clinton doesn't push the recommendation forward because he says he wants to wait until the appeals process is complete. And then he actually goes and convinces the board to reconsider its recommendation for release. So he does get involved, and he's governor, so, like, he can do that. But it looks a little fishy because it's a distant relative, right? Yeah. So, obviously, this kind of becomes a political issue, and you have all this commentary accusing him of getting involved in the case because the victim is a relative. And it gets to be such a contentious issue that in 1991, he ends up recusing himself from the case and turns it over to his lieutenant governor, a guy named Jim Guy Tucker. Okay, so, smart move. yeah, so Tucker reads the file and he immediately reduces Dumont's sentence from life plus 20 down to 39 years, mm-hmm. which is still a pretty good clip because he's only been in prison for like six, seven years at this point. But by reducing his sentence, but what about the possibility of parole? Yes, that's what I was about to say. So, by reducing his sentence, Tucker makes Dumont eligible for parole. Okay. okay. And his justification is that the jury had not been allowed to take the castration into consideration. Ugh. What does that have to do with anything? So, it doesn't have to do with his rape of a person or his potential crime. It happened all before. Right. I, I'm guessing, and this is pure speculation, I'm just, I'm, I'm guessing it had, maybe he thought that had the jury been able to consider that, they would have thought him less likely to reoffend. Uh-uh. So he would still get a lengthy sentence, but... No. Yeah, so, I mean, which is something we've been talking that about. It seems like that would be an error that would be cause for appeal. Like, yeah, in the in the actual if trial. Allow that. Yeah, but I don't know what happens if, like, the lieutenant governor, mm-hmm. or acting as the governor, gets... In, like, I don't think you can appeal... Can you appeal that? I don't know. It seems like you, you might... I don't know. <sighs> yeah, um, it's... I'm not sure. Yeah, it's weird. Southern law, and you know, it states sometimes vary from place to place. I mean, it's not like all right. That's true. Is the same. Yeah. So so anyway, so he becomes eligible for parole, and while he's in prison, he claims to have undergone a religious conversion. So obviously, we're talking about Arkansas. So this becomes a popular rallying point for evangelical Christians in the state, right? And he ends up finally being released on... Poster child. Yes. So he he ends up getting recommended (laughs) for release in 1997 by Governor Mike Huckabee. And if you know anything about Mike Huckabee, I would tend to speculate that the the religious conversion aspect of it played a big role in why he recommended parole. Right? Wow. And the fact that he was convicted under Democratic governor when Mike Huckabee is a Republican probably doesn't hurt either. It's probably going to be something that... Mike Huckabee can use in his political career, right? Like, I mean, that's speculation again, but, like, that's just kind of what I'm thinking. Like, it's a gamesmanship, right? Yeah. So the thing, though, is that Mike Huckabee met in executive session with five of the seven parole board members to discuss Dumont's parole, but he kicked out the assistant who normally takes minutes during those meetings. So according to Arkansas state law... 
You're only allowed to have a secret executive session like this with no minutes or notes or anything like that when you're discussing personnel decisions like employment, promotion, demotion, discipline, termination, things like that, right? How weird. Yeah, so he he meets with five of the seven, kicks out the person that's, that's supposed to take minutes, and then they end up recommending parole, right? And later, mm-hmm. four of these people on the parole board, four of these five members spoke either on the record or anonymously, saying that Huckabee used the executive sessions to strongly advocate for Dumont's parole. And Mike Huckabee denies this. Um, just want to say that. So... In January of 1997, the board recommended his parole, but he's not actually released until October 1999 on the condition that he leave the state. Mm-hmm. All right. So basically, they're like, all right, we're going to let you out, but you're not going to be our problem anymore, which seems kind of like you might want to keep tabs on somebody who has this kind of history, but he only has that one conviction, I guess. So, so anyway. So he moves just outside of Kansas City, Missouri in 2000, and he ends up getting married to a woman who had been part of a church group that visited him while he's in prison. So again, this is part of this whole religious conversion evangelical situation. Where the hell do they come from? I just don't understand it. I don't know. I, I know like, like last podcast on the left did a thing about women who write serial killers and visit serial killers and stuff like that it's a weird it's like a fetish it's a weird level of psychology i don't get i i kind of think it's like you're attracted these women are attracted to the danger but they're also they know that the men are in prison so it's like a safety thing i think yeah but it's really weird like it's really weird that's again that's just my guess but anyway So he gets married to this woman from this church group. And on September 20th of 2000, 39-year-old Carol Sue Shields is raped and murdered. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Dumont gets arrested and charged for these crimes on, for for the murder, uh, rape and murder of Carol Sue Shields on June 22nd, 2001. The day before he's arrested. 23-year-old Sarah Andrasek is raped and murdered one day before. And she was actually pregnant at the time of her murder. Okay. And Dumont is convicted of the murder of Carol Sue Shields in 2003. And charges were in the process of being filed against him for the murder of Sarah Andrasek in the fall of 2005. But Wayne Dumont dies of cancer while in prison on September 1, 2005, before he can be officially charged. For real. Yeah. So, the last little note about this, because I did look up some research about this, but the last little note is Carol Sue's mother, Lois Davidson, made a very politically damaging ad during Mike Huckabee's presidential campaign Mm -hmm. in 2007. And her her ad... And in her ad, she basically just says, if not for Mike Huckabee, Wayne Dumont would have been in prison and Carol Sue would have been with us this year for Christmas, which that's, I mean, it's a true statement. It's very politically damaging and who knows how much damage it ended up doing to his campaign because he was kind of a long shot at that time anyway, but he took a really big hit for recommending Wayne Dumont's parole and for releasing him. And his defense to that is that basically it wasn't his fault. It was Bill Clinton's fault and Jim Guy Tucker's fault. Blame game. Let's play the blame game. I don't know how he gets to that conclusion. But 
Exactly. That's what you do when you're a pol- politician. So, but I wanted to talk about this case, A, because it's so crazy with all the twists and turns, but B, I ended up looking into some um, scientific research on castrations because we've talked about physical and surgical and chemical castration and the effectiveness of those. So I wanted to kind of go into the the scientific research and, and see what that said, because I thought that was really interesting that it seems like the lieutenant governor's justification for recommending his or for commu- com- commuting his sentence it was that he may he presumably wouldn't have been a violent offender anymore had the jury been able to take his castration into consideration they may have thought that he wouldn't mm-hmm. be a violent criminal and then he's released and it turns out that this is what happened so clearly whatever happened to him regarding his castration was not effective right. in preventing this so, crime i mean i don't think that um castration whether it be physical chemical or you know just legit castration mm-hmm. like surgical castration is a solution mm-hmm. for violent criminals i think that it can be used as a tool right. to help with parole of sexually deviant individuals in certain instances mm-hmm. but i think you have some other evidence that kind of talks right. about this a little further right so what I wanted to do is mm-hmm. I wanted to look up and actually get into the, the scientific research on castration because we talked about surgical castration versus chemical castration and the recidivism rates. Yeah. And we know that, you know, we've seen that we've we've talked about before that the, the uh, recidivism rates are pretty low. Right. So I looked this up and when you just Google surgical castration and recidivism, you are pointed to this 2005 article that is in the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, okay? And this article, for some reason, it's the one that comes up first thing on Google. And there's a lot of other articles that kind of go back and reference this 2005 article. So I wanted to look into this article and see what it's about. This article is basically a metadata study. So what they did is they took the data from a lot of other studies and they collated it. And then they kind of talk about the results in a summary manner. So they talk about that. The title of this article is The Impact of Surgical Castration on Sexual Recidivism Risk Among Sexually Violent Predatory Offenders. So I was like, great, this is going to answer all my questions. <laughs> Au contraire, because this article talks, the, the, the research this article mostly references, um, it starts, it says that Denmark was the first country to, I guess, make it a law for, for surgical castration for sexual offenders, for violent sexual sexual offenders. And they did this in 1929. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's really old, what? right? Following that, yeah. Germany did it in 1933. Norway did it in 1934. Finland, 1935. Estonia, 1937. Iceland, 1938. Latvia, 1938. And Sweden, 1944. So it's been going on for a while. It has been going on for a while. But what was going on in Germany in 1933? World War II. That's when Hitler was, was elected chancellor. Mm-hmm. So to go back and look at this research and say this is where we're pulling our, our research on efficacy of surgical castration with sex offenders, a little <laughs> flawed. Yeah, I think in that period of time in Europe, they were allowing like gypsies to be castrated. and like, Romani is yeah. the appropriate term. Yeah. Well, right. But they they could. How do we and how do we know who really was a sexual offender versus 
what they were trying to do with euthanasia, what they were trying to do with eugenics. How do we, how do we trust anything that happened? They were doing it with They yeah. were doing it with um, Jewish people. Like it was they experimental were them to be surgery railroaded. that they were yeah. doing. Yeah. So how can we trust, like, this is why I want to talk about this, because how can we trust this paper is what is what happens when you, like, this is the thing you see when you Google surgical castration and recidivism is it points you to this paper and then you have papers that have been published since the 2005 paper that refer back to this paper and it's like well let's look at this data from world war ii when you don't actually know that that what they're studying is what they're studying right Mm -hmm. so that kind of caught my eye and i want to talk about that because they do talk about the fact that um, they look at one study from 1952 in california and they say that of the I think 60-something people who... Subjects. Underwent surgical castration in... It's actually San Diego. Oh, wow. Of of the uh, sexually violent persons. And they did it voluntarily? Um, Or they... I mean... Yes. Okay. It was all voluntary. From... Well, I say that. I don't actually know that because this paper doesn't go into that. But between 1937 and 1952, there were 60-some-odd subjects in San Diego who underwent surgical castration and zero went on to commit sexual violent crimes after that right yeah so they're like well this works i don't know i have well, that, a was hard, that was in the 50s right <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. i have a hard time believing that something that happened 70 years ago is the basis for what we're doing now uh-huh and that's the only one that they talk about in the united states so on the one hand, you have this sample of data from World War II, from Hitler, and when he, you know, obviously they expanded east into Eastern Europe. And then you have this study from between 1937 and 1952 or whatever, or 1959. Uh, I, I tend to it. follow and believe and maybe give more credence to like the Danish studies, the ones in, in Norwegian countries, because they seemed to me like they would be a little bit more legitimate. But you also have to think about what was going on there in the 30s and 40s, because Nazi Germany did invade those countries. In the 30s, though? Uh, it They started moving east in 1935. Yeah. Interesting. 1935, I believe, is when they started moving into uh, the Czech Republic. Very interesting. So that is why I want to talk about this, because we talked about research at the top of the show. And it's really important to actually go in and read this research, because if you just read the abstract of this paper, you don't get any of that. So obviously, this is a little bit problematic. The other thing that this paper talks about is they say, okay, we obviously have a very flawed, they do admit it's flawed. I'll give them that. They have a very flawed and old sample of surgical castration in, in sexually violent persons. But let's also compare this to the data that we do have for um, people that get castrated because they have prostate or testicular cancer. So Okay? And we have more recent research on that. And what they found is it's, I mean, this isn't groundbreaking. This isn't going to tell you anything you don't know. What they found is that basically... Removing the testicles does decrease your sex drive, but it does not decrease your ability to have sex, which we know. We talked about that already. And they talk about the the ones who did go on to commit violent crimes again when we're talking about the sexually violent persons. They talk about two specifically of the ones that that, 
um, reoffended, I believe mm-hmm. they were in Germany, um, the ones that reoffended, they only reoffended after their physicians had given them testosterone therapy. Interesting. So that was interesting, right? The other thing that I found, because I wanted to find something more recent, because that was 2005, I found this other study in the Journal of Trauma, Violence, and Abuse, and this is from 2016, and this is called Sex Offender Recidivism Revisited, Review of Recent Meta-Analyses on the Effects of Sex Offender Treatment, and again, this does reference the 2005 paper, but it also references um, a bunch of other ones, and this one talked a lot about juvenile offenders, and I thought that was really interesting. Because How they looked that thing. That's so crazy. Oh, it was a thing. Um, but it was really interesting because they talk about there's different methods. There's co- cognitive behavioral therapy. There's surgical castration. There's chemical castration. For a child. Well, for a juvenile. That could be 17, 16, 17. Yeah, but it could also be 12. It could be. You're right. Yikes. Mm-hmm. But it happens, unfortunately. But they talk about, and this is interesting and something I hadn't thought about before, but they talk about the sample bias because this is still a voluntary intervention Oh Lord! for everybody that they had. So the people, the recidivism rate, yes, is, is under 10% for almost all of the different interventions. But... Is that simply because these are people who are un- who are voluntarily undergoing surgical or chemical castration? We don't. I mean, there's all kinds of ethical considerations when you're talking about making this mandatory or not, or or doing this against somebody's will. Either surgical or mm-hmm. chemical. And this actually, this article, this is from 2016. This article actually did not make a differentiation between which one's more effective. They're both effective. So I thought that was really interesting, but I also thought that that's that the way we've been talking about this is a little bit flawed because we don't have the data to show what happens when you make someone undergo this therapy or this intervention. So involuntary yep. castration. So I thought that was really interesting in light of the Wayne Dumont case because it shows... So what you're saying is basically we cannot advocate for having this as a process that is required if we do not know the long-term impacts on an involuntary portion of the population. And the people who are voluntarily going through this intervention clearly have a desire to stop offending. What about the people that don't? Right. It's my understanding though that, that what's going on right now is a voluntary condition for most of them that are undergoing it as a condition of their release so that they can get out, get out early. And then we're dealing with the issues like Arkansas as a subsection of this, mm-hmm. or not Arkansas, Alabama, where they are now trying to make it a mandatory well, portion of sentencing. Yes. Or and they passed that law, but I actually, well, the governor signed the bill. I don't know what happened after that. I don't think that's been implemented at all yet. But do you think that in the majority of prisoners that are coming out of the the prison system right now, that they would not do it voluntarily if given the choice? See, when you talk about a prison population and stuff like this, it's really hard to answer that question because they're a vulnerable population, right? So like what their their decision is contingent upon their release or punishment. So there's an inherent punishment in not doing it. So you can't look at that as a completely unbiased right. sample. So it's hard to answer that question, right? I never thought about it that way. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to get into this research because, A, there's not a lot of research on this. 
B, the research there is, is either flawed because it's from Germany in 1933, or it's it's because a sample bias of people who are voluntarily going through it. Interesting. So how do we know how effective this actually is? As a treatment against involuntary. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I'll be clear, this 2016 article does say that, that surgical and chemical castration are both very effective. But again, that's for volunteers. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I guess they're just going to need to do a lot more research. I mean, I'm sure that they're undergoing and, and taking undertaking that research right now, even as we speak, right? I, I mean, again, you have to be really careful with the prison population. I don't know. I think that that 2005 article hit on something looking at the patients and, and survivors of testicular cancer and prostate mm-hmm. cancer. I think they really hit on something like that because it does give you a control group in terms of sexual urges. But you also you have the, the flip of that of the people who are stimulated by sexually devi- deviant behavior. Yeah. And that's the part we that's the question we, we can't answer yet. I don't on that segment of the population. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll hear more as time goes on. I mean. I think as we continue to see the prison populations rise and they're looking for more and more ways to clear out beds, that this will become mm-hmm. an option that will be increasingly available. And we're mm-hmm. going to need to determine how to deal with it as it comes. Yeah, I just thought it was so interesting because like that 2005 article is everywhere. And I, I read it and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't. How are you going to tell me that the data from 1933 Germany is what you're working with? I don't know that I saw that particular article. I remember I did look at a couple of studies, but they mm-hmm. were like very small samples versus. Yeah. And that's the other thing and, and, is it's a, it's a really small sample size. It's oftentimes a biased sample size. I mean, there's so many issues with this. Well, they research. make it clear, too. And it's like a sample size from five years of 20 right. individuals and or even. A sample size for five years of 100 individuals, that's still a very small study. And I don't think people realize that. In order to get accurate results and numbers and to really get an idea of how something impacts the population, you've got to have a large study, a large sample yes. over a long number of years. And unfortunately, we just don't have that at this point. Yes. So like when you're talking about doing subject with doing research with human subjects, the idea is you want your sample to be an accurate representation of the population you're studying. So you would want your sample of sexually violent persons to be representative of the greater population, either imprisoned or not, of sexually violent persons. And I think that 2016 article basically just says it's not. Well, and I think, too, we're kind of forced with a situation here where we are desperately trying to, as we see increases in numbers of sexually deviant and violent prisoners we are increasingly trying to come up with solutions on how to rehabilitate Mm -hmm. or bring them back out into society rather than to throw them away as useless Mm -hmm. after they are convicted and so we are really grasping at straws and what can we do and we're willing to take risks in order to get them back out into the population so that they can be useful members of society again, rather than looking at it from a perspective as we need to really study this extensively there, they've jumped on the bandwagon, the first one to come along because that's all they feel they have at the moment. Right. And like what other options do you have? And that goes into the, is prison supposed to be real rehabilitative or punitive? And, and who are we protect? Are we protecting society? Are we protecting 
or are we trying to and treat are the individuals beyond redemption? exactly and are there just some individuals that are too violent too messed up that they are beyond redemption and how do mm-hmm. we determine that and in, in, in the articles, it does talk about how they, they specifically measure, like, testosterone levels in the saliva of a couple of people who had been castrated. And, mm-hmm. I mean, basically, it's, the, the, the result was you can't, you can't do a broad treatment for a very individualistic problem because they have one guy who was castrated and he reported he had exactly, you know, he had zero libido. He was not interested in any kind of sexual, sexually stimulating material, be it um, quote unquote normal, be it deviant. They measured his, tos- his testosterone. So they basically asked him, are you stimulated by this? And then they measured his testosterone. And how can that be true? How can that be factual? They can lie. Well, they, but that's why they, they measure the every testosterone. They incentive to say, I have nothing. I have no. That's why they measured the testosterone in their saliva. Yeah. I, I and so on, for are. one guy, one guy, it was. The, the testosterone levels matched what he was saying in the survey responses and that he was not stimulated by this material. Mm-hmm. They, they looked at another guy. He said, I wasn't. I'm not stimulated by this. They, they looked at his testosterone. It showed otherwise. And then a little bit later, they found child pornography at his house. Yeah. So it's, it's basically you, there, there's not a one, fits, one, one thing fits all treatment for this problem when it's very indiv- individualized deviant behavior yeah so but it was really interesting research and a really good lesson in how to consume that research as opposed to just like looking at this 2005 article and being like well they show that the recidivism rate is is 10 percent, so it must be great yeah it was interesting absolutely and you know we always love a good castration case (laughs) <laughs> apparently we do i don't know why like i saw it i i got there on wikipedia and it was completely random that i got there i ended up looking at this reporter's thing and then talking about this case and i was like holy crap i gotta look this up yeah and that's yeah so all right folks this is the point in the podcast where we say so long farewell please rate review and subscribe to our little podcast if you have any comments suggestions critiques send us an email why not we're at the bfd podcast at gmail.com you can let us know if you have something you want to add, if you have the specific kind of a topic you want us to cover, we'd be more than happy to jump in as long as it's something that's not deeply offensive or <laughs> or awful. I can't imagine what that would possibly be, but, you know, maybe they want us to cover Nazi cases of castration, <laughs> which I don't really want to, don't really want to jump <laughs> yeah. into. Um, social media, Darcy? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, so you can either reach out via email or or social media if you want uh, these articles. I'll link to them um, if you're interested in looking at that research. Awesome. Please join us again next week as we talk about more weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>